This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're highlighting conversations with authors who will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival over Labor Day weekend. Jim Okmudi was going to be there tomorrow. He spent a whole lot of time studying one of the things that divides Americans, state against state, region against region, pork against beef, barbecue. While the particulars, origin stories, and claims to be the barbecue of the capital may vary, Jim Okmudi found one thing we can agree on. Barbecue has a southern accent. The veteran journalist and smoked meat Sherpa is author of Smoke Lore, a short history of barbecue in America, covering the history, evolution, and imagery of a tradition that has flavored American culture, identity, and politics since before the nation was a nation. I spoke to him when Smoke Lore first came out. Being one of many books about barbecue, I asked him what the book adds to the existing books on the topic. Well, uh, barbecue has never been given the truly uh, uh, the big picture historical view, I think, that I'm giving it here. There have been academic histories done, but there's never been a history done that was uh, academically sound, but also as lavishly illustrated as smoke lore and um, ac- also got across the sense of fun. That's the whole point of it. It is fun to read this book, I have to say. It's a bit of a romp. And you started researching the book you write when you were five years old. So what was your methodology of research? Well, what I mean by that, of course, is it's in my DNA. I I come from a long line of pitmasters in Georgia, uh, particularly, well, my great-grandfather in Bartow County, Georgia, James Robert Ockmoody, my namesake, uh, was a noted pitmaster up there. But it was my grandfather, Bob Ockmoody, who we knew as Daddy Bob, who was really the renowned pitmaster. He was featured in this 1954 article in the Saturday Evening Post uh, titled uh, Dixie's Most Disputed Dish. (laughs) And they just happened to set it at the Uharley Farmers Club Barbecue outside of Cartersville, where he had been the pitmaster for years. So he's the first picture you see in this thing, uh, looking over the pits. And he became quite... Uh, sought after after that. Uh, In fact, uh, there was a group in uh, suburban Chicago that had him and some of his pals come up and cook a southern barbecue and make Brunswick stew for 2,000 people up there. That's the scale of this is just unbelievable. But the funniest thing is when he came back, he he was telling uh, all of his experiences to the uh, Cartersville newspaper, and they ran a story about them going up and cooking this barbecue under the tongue-in-cheek headline, Rebels Cook Southern Q in Very Heart of Yankee Land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always been tied in with so many things, and the history tied in with mythology here in many cases. Beginning with the word itself, there are some interesting origin stories for barbecue, which is accurate. Well, you hear a bunch of them. Uh, You hear that it came from a uh, a brand uh, on a a Texas ranch, BBQ. You hear that it came from the French phrase barbecue, which is supposed to mean head to tail, never mind that a uh, a beard to tail, never mind that a pig doesn't have a beard. Um, The accepted version is that uh, it dates to the earliest uh, encounters between uh, the Taino Indians, the the native tribes uh, of much of the Caribbean, uh, and the Spanish uh, sailors who came with Columbus on his second voyage. They saw these Indians out there cooking on the shore of Cuba, and uh, their approximation of the little uh, grill, really, the wooden grill that they were cooking fish and lizards on, uh, was a barbacoa. Okay, lizard. Uh, you know, I was going to say beef or pork. What were, they, what were they cooking? They were cooking fish, which the Spanish sailors ate hungrily, 
and they were cooking iguana, which the Spanish sailors thought was disgusting. And uh, but the uh, but the Taino loved iguana, and they were very relieved that the Spanish didn't steal the iguana because that's actually what they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there are these images that come back of the, the Caribbean indigenous people and the Taino Indians um, cooking in the West India manner brought back to Europe by artists in the late 1500s. But there's also an early indication here of a kind of duality that would follow barbecue, that it's, you know, both delicious, but it's also bizarre, you know, to them. It's evidence of savagery or low barbaric manners. How did that play out historically, this kind of dual vision? Well, a lot of the early European depictions of barbecue, uh, they, they portrayed it as something that was uh, savage and wild and was of the new world. And everything they were saying about the new world was this is a, this is a really exciting place, but it's also dangerous and savage. And barbecue was a, uh, a really great example of that. Now, the irony of this, of course, is that barbecue is actually a timeless and universal cooking technique. It appears in almost every culture in the world. They've been doing it since cavemen and women. And uh, so there are barbecue traditions, but the one that really birthed 500 years ago in America and took the word barbecue is probably the most distinctive barbecue tradition in the world, and it's certainly the one that's most wrapped up with its country and its culture. I mean, to me, my central contention in the book is that barbecue is really most truly American food, not apple pie. And the reason why I say that is because it has roots on five continents. It involves almost every ethnic group that makes up America. It, uh, it's so wrapped up in our history. It goes back to the beginning of our history. I mean, there's a reason why we have barbecues on the 4th of July. It embodies us. Mm. But the South is where, you say, the, the southern, southeastern seaboard was really the taproot. Why did it take off in the South especially? Well, it took off in the South because, of course, the, the colonies in Virginia and uh, North Carolina very early on showed a predilection for eating pork. And pigs uh, sort of became the quintessential early barbecue food. Barbecue was all about having big events on plantations. Usually the cooking was done by African slaves. Uh, so they had an out, even though they didn't invent barbecue, they had an outsized hand in, in, in sort of uh, creating what we think of as barbecue. And uh, the combination of plantation socializing and all these pigs uh, in, in Virginia and North Carolina in particular really led to the birth of barbecue culture. And it, it's really why barbecue has such a southern accent to this day. And this new American cooking became a tool for politicians and campaigns, beginning with the very founding of the Republic, George Washington. How did he tie into barbecue history? Well, in George Washington's diaries, he mentions going to seven or eight barbecues, and he spells it every which way with an I, with, you know, this idea that we don't know how to spell barbecue goes way, way back, and we've never settled it to this day. Um, the uh, What you're talking about is that by the founding of the Republic, barbecue was a very well-known institution in the United States, so much so when, that when they laid the cornerstone for the Capitol building in September of 1793, 
George Washington, who was the president then, first president, he oversaw the ceremony. He was a Mason. It was a Masonic ceremony. He put on his Masonic apron. He pronounced the... <laughs> the first the, barbecue apron. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. It was a Masonic apron. Uh, and he, he pronounced the mumbo-jumbo over over the uh, thing, uh, over the laying of the brick. And, after, and then all the dignitaries repaired for a, a, to barbecued ox. That's how they celebrated the founding of the American Republic, was barbecued beef, not pork. <laughs> Okay, Texan, Texans get one point there. But this is also inter- interesting that there was a practical purpose during the French-Indian War. He, they smoked meat because they didn't have any salt. So is this, is this an improvisational cooking as well? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was uh, smoking meat like that. It was all. It was something you did at big gatherings, uh, at parties. Uh, I mean, when Washington was talking about doing barbecues, sometimes these were two and three day events. They were they were long weekends at the plantation, probably with a lot of grog, and. Uh, and yes, a lot of it was about meat preservation. You know, they didn't have a refrigeration in those days. And smoking stuff and seasoning it heavily, uh, salt, pepper, vinegar, uh, the classic sort of eastern North Carolina barbecue sauce ingredients, uh, w- was part of making pork last longer. Barbecue, says my guest Jim Moody, is America and a mouthful. We're talking about how the flavor has seeped into so many aspects of the nation, as illustrated in his new book, Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. He'll be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival tomorrow. Well, despite being delicious and bringing people to people together who may not normally come together, it did not sell in regular dining establishments for a long time. It was, you know, then roadside joints and churches. People would cook it in their homes. When did the barbecue become professionalized, for lack of a better word? Well, for most of American history, barbecue referred to a big event. If, I've gone back and read all of the so many news accounts of barbecue, digitized newspapers from the 1800s and early 1900s, and it was almost always a political gathering or a community event. It it was a big event they were talking about. Barbecue restaurants didn't really start coming about until the very late 1800s and didn't really take off until automobiles became prevalent uh, into the, you know, the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. The two oldest barbecue places in Georgia are roadside establishments that opened in the 20s, Sprayberries in Noonan and Fresh Air on US 23 in Jackson. And they both very much started to, you know, to, to service the, the, road, the roadside people. So what you find is that in the, in the mid 20th century, the sense of the word barbecue changes. We think of it today as referring to a restaurant or to something you cook in the backyard. And a hundred years ago, that's not what they thought barbecue was. Well, growing up in New Hampshire, we'd say, let's have a barbecue. And it meant grilling hamburgers. <laughs> well, and your sense of the word barbecue is actually a modern sense that comes from the rise of backyard cooking, which was not typical until the early, it really didn't take off until about World War II. Mm-hmm. So, but when did that become, you know, the... The post-war suburbs took on this barbecue outdoor cooking, but it became really mostly associated with men. Why? Why were men the barbecue chefs? Backyard barbecue cooking really didn't rise until the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And it really takes off when you start getting these mobile cookers in the backyard and this idea that you build a brick pit in the backyard like I, I Love Lucy did uh, uh, to, uh, to, to cook back there. It became part of the suburban good life. And that period actually coincided with probably the, the, the height of gender stereotyping in, in American culture. 
So if you go back and look at barbecue cookbooks from the 1950s and 60s and, and, and the magazines where they wrote about it, it is just amazing and laughable how much they play up the idea that men are supposed to be doing this cooking and that women are supposed to be getting a day off uh, from, from the cooking chores. Well, let's hear a little bit from a clip from an episode of I Love Lucy addressing that very thing. And then I figured that the grill should be up, say, about that high to keep the smoke out of our eyes. <laughs> now, would that make it kind of awkward for cooking? Well, we'll get a little stepladder and stand on that. Oh, a stepladder. Wait a minute. Where are the blueprints? Blueprints? The plants. Oh, who needs plans? We'll just create as we go along. Yeah, we thought we'd just ad-lib this barbecue. Now, just a minute, girls, just a minute. It is very obvious that you don't know what you're doing. I better do this job myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ethel, I guess that's right. I guess they do know more about it than we do. Yeah, building a barbecue is man's work. Yeah. Is it still true more women, men rather, cook outside than women? I don't know the exact statistics, but I think it's pretty clear that men have more of an affinity for going outside and building a fire. But the idea that women are not involved in barbecue was never true, and it's even less true now than it ever has been. All right. So are you willing to go on the record, Jim? Pork, beef, vinegar sauce, tomato sauce? Oh, I am so ecumenical when it comes to barbecue. As far as the sauce goes, it depends on what the meat is. Uh, To me, I mean, I love Eastern uh, North Carolina style uh, whole hog, like Brian Furman has done here in Atlanta at B's Crackling Barbecue. And the best sauce for that is that spicy vinegar sauce with any tomato in it. But there's a whole different thing that you would use on beef. Jim Ockmoody, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Virginia. This has been fun. Jim Ockmoody is author of Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. He's going to be serving up some of his thoughts on the culinary favorite tomorrow at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. And we'll leave you with one of many songs celebrating this American art form, Strutting with Some Barbecue, from 1927, Louis Armstrong. Coming up, forget the pearls, but keep the martini. We're going to get unladylike with the hosts of a podcast of the same name. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger say they were printed word nerds in college. They both worked on UGA's esteemed red and black newspaper and reunited years later as host of the ultra-successful Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast. Well, now they've launched their own podcast, published a book, and started a media company called Unladylike. This is our new podcast where we investigate what happens when women break the rules. We've been doing feminist podcasting for years together, Caroline, but we realize it's time to expand the conversation. Caroline and Kristen joined us in the spring when their new company launched, and I asked them how they first met studying journalism at UGA. We were, yes. We were uh, print journalism majors, which I don't even think is a thing at Grady anymore. (laughs) I don't think so. Yeah, we were newspapers majors specifically, which is kind of funny to think about now. Well, Caroline, you did go on to work at a newspaper, but Kristen, you worked as a staff writer at the Atlanta-based How Stuff Works. And long before it became one of the most respected podcast networks in the country. In fact, they hadn't even been making audio. So what were those early conversations like about this new medium? It was really fun. So like you said, in the, uh, you know, late 
aughts, so this was around 2008, uh, these things called podcasts had started happening. And every week as a staff writer at How Stuff Works, our job was essentially to write an in-depth article deep diving into some particular topic. So the idea with podcasts was, uh, let's just try to kind of take the same research rigor that we apply to these articles we're writing and sort of repurpose them for audio. And obviously, <laughs> many years later now, uh, it was a wildly successful experiment. Um, and that actually opened the door for me to be able to pitch the idea for what became stuff mom never told you. Mm -hmm. So you met back up with Kristen and eventually uh, you were co-host, creator. Um, Kristen eventually came back to work on stuff mom never told you. What was the draw for you, Kristen? Oh, well. um, I'm Caroline, sorry. (laughs) So I had moved back to Atlanta after working at the Augusta Chronicle for four years as a copy editor. And Kristen and I met up. We reconnected. We went out for beers. Uh, We just realized that we still loved talking with each other. And when Kristen's original co-host, Molly, left Stuff Mom Never Told You, um, I was working a miserable, miserable job in Buckhead. And she texted me one day and said, would you want to potentially podcast with me? I had no real idea what that meant, but I was like, absolutely. This sounds great. Being able to have a fun, creative job where I get to talk to you for a living? Absolutely. So, Kristen, when you started this, 2009, what did you want it to be? So the idea at the time, uh, I was in my early 20s and uh, relatively new in the work world. I was, you know, single and dating. And there were just honestly a lot of things about being a younger woman that I, I had a lot of curiosity about. And this thing called feminism was also sort of entering my consciousness in a a bigger way for the first time. And uh, there was a website called Jezebel that was really popular at the time. This was sort of in the heyday of uh, websites like Gawker. And the idea that uh, the original Stuff I'm Never Told You co-host Molly and I came up with was, well, what if we sort of made almost like a sneaky but really smart Jezebel <laughs> out of this <laughs> podcast so we could apply simply a gendered lens to all of the same kind of research that we were doing on everyday topics, but really just zeroing in on how certain things apply to women, how experiences change and shift as soon as you examine it uh, through the lens of gender and women's experiences. Um, And to be honest, How Stuff Works really took a, a shot on allowing us to do it because they were really focused on science and technology at the time. Um, in the early or late 2000s, women were still in a lot of ways, particularly in digital media, considered a very niche mm-hmm. audience. It's the little bro shops <laughs> is what they're trying, they were for the most part. A little bit. And so uh, it was such an important opportunity that they even allow, allowed us to get in the studio and start um, making this what became a a very overtly feminist podcast, Um, but still with the same kind of um, research credibility that the other stable of, you know, How Stuff Works podcasts have as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's one of the things I think that really characterizes it, that this is real 
journalism. You're really reporting in many ways when you're having these conversations. First episode, 2009, Do Men and Women Have Different Brains? So, you know, there's obviously something a little bit heavier to it than, oh, I can't find a date, you know, or anything like that. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but why do you think it did? I mean, million downloads a month, uh, you know, in all kinds of magazines covered in everything from, you know, like Harper's Bazaar to The Guardian. Why do you think it did so well? I think there wasn't really anything like it at the time. Um, in the podcast landscape, certainly, there were very few, if any, podcasts specifically dedicated to gender and women's issues that weren't already established at broadcasts like the BBC Women's Hour, which is still terrific. Um, but we were doing something that I think a lot of, a lot of people weren't at the time, which was taking a sort of mainstreaming women in a way. So rather than having a show about women and therefore it being something around motherhood or weddings, whatever it might be, um, really kind of breaking out of those silos and saying, hey, we can look for women in any kind of topic. And that's what Caroline and I did literally for hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Like some ep- so many, in fact, that I've I've forgotten some topics it's, that we've covered. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's almost 800. But I, I do think that women and girls were hungry for those types of conversations mm-hmm. of of having their issues, fears, joys, loves taken seriously and approached from a research intensive but still fun perspective. And also not just women and girls from the jump we have always heard from men who are grateful to be able to kind of eavesdrop in mm-hmm. on a lot of these conversations and take what they learn into relationships with women and girls in their own lives. Mm-hmm. That's Kristen Conger. She and Caroline Irvin are co-founders of unladylike media. But let's get to this, you know, because you left, you know, you left this really successful venture, uh, How Stuff Works in 2016-ish, I don't know, um, to create your own company, Unladylike Media. So, so Caroline, what, were you, what did you want to do that you weren't doing there? We wanted to really take advantage of our own creative impulses, essentially. That's kind of the short answer. We were creating at How Stuff Works uh, two episodes a week, which was a lot. And it was such a rewarding experience to be able to do so much research and have such a long leash to be able to create. However, we wanted more room to create the kind of media that we wanted to see in the world. So we wanted to bring in more voices, more interviews. We wanted to play with formats. Um, we wanted to essentially get off of a leash. And uh, it was in the wake of the election that mm-hmm. we left How Stuff Works. Uh, we had gotten a book deal to write Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. And that allowed us to finally step into our own company, create our own company, build what we wanted to see. So who or what did you look to maybe as a template for owning and creating your own media company? So there were other um, podcast ventures that had, you know, certainly started since How Stuff Works began its podcast venture that that was taking a more audio native approach to it. So you have um, places like Gimlet, mm-hmm. where you know they are all about. They started from, you know, people who were on Planet Money, and then this American d- Life, yes, and then built it into their own sort of like podcast production house. So there were those kinds of models that were out there. We knew that there was a way to uh, make the business side of it work. But to be completely honest, we 
we just ju- jumped right in. <laughs> You're yeah. winging it. We were winging it because we had this grand idea that in you know the next year we were going to write a book, we were going to create this new podcast, oh, this yeah. whole new business. It was going to be so simple. <laughs> At first, it did seem very simple. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad we didn't realize how unsimple. It would be. Right. Or you wouldn't have done it? Well, I think we prob- we would have done it because we really wanted to own our own stuff and create our own media. I think we probably would have taken a lot longer yeah. to do it. I don't know that we would have jumped headfirst into uh, a book and a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of work. And especially when you're doing something every day, you're producing a podcast, but you're also managing a company. So how are you balancing that? That's a balance that we're still figuring out. Yeah, yeah. Today. We actually met about it yesterday, for instance, to be able to look at our entire unladylike universe and what does that comprise. And sort of honestly, we're still figuring out how to delegate, split up responsibilities. What do you like doing? What do I like doing? Mm-hmm. And how best can we continue to grow this? But the most exciting thing ab- about this whole process of learning as we're growing both um as creatives but also now as entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is that we have really surrounded ourselves with incredibly brilliant women who are helping us with financial planning, who are producing Unladylike the podcast, who created our Unladylike logo. From top to bottom, um, we've been blown away just by the support we have been able to find from, you know, other women who, who know how to do these parts of the business better than we do and really surround ourselves with a great team. My guests are Caroline Irvin and Christian Conjur. They are creators of Unladylike Media and a podcast of the same name. Have either of you ever been called unladylike? I don't think this is Caroline. I don't think directly. It's definitely not your face. (laughs) It's definitely been insinuated. Right. What does it mean to you? Um, Well, as our show says, it's unladylike is all about women who break the rules. So unladylike is sort of going against what society expects for women. A lot of that revolves around maybe being quieter, being a little polite, maybe even wearing pearls, which I know my mother wishes I wore more often. <laughs> Same. I, I think also, uh, you know, Caroline and I are both white women. And for us as well, unladylike is um, s- telegraphing living in awareness of the privileges, the ladylike privileges that are often socially bestowed on white women and uh, choosing to see those and live beyond them and really break not only the rules uh, imposed on us through gender norms, but also through white privilege, class privilege, whatever it might be. Yes, one thinks lady and you do think of Pearl, certainly. <laughs> What are the topics that you gravitate towards? So I think it's all about really finding the unexpected angles to women's lived experiences that you might not hear about all that often or the unexpected ways that we often hear women portrayed, but maybe from uh, different types of angles. So Mm -hmm. for instance, with reproductive rights, our very first episode was how to pay for an abortion because we realized in all the conversations we have around reproductive rights, we rarely talk about the finance 
of it. Right. It tends to be a moral conversation, right versus wrong. We wanted to approach it as we do most of our topics from, okay, this is a thing. It's legal for the moment. Let's investigate issues of access via finances. So you stayed away from the flashpoint stuff and went to the practical. But I'm wondering what kind of feedback you get from something like that. That's like throwing down a glove in the culture in a way to even talk about abortion. So so what kind of pushback have you gotten for that? Honestly, very little. We we hear from people who feel so validated. For instance, we also did an episode on how to be a bad mom. And this was talking to two women who, you know, we, we talk about ambivalence before you have kids, not being sure whether you should become a parent. But these were two women who were ambivalent about the role of motherhood once they had kids, loved their children, uh, ambivalent about the role of motherhood. And I, I don't think we have ever received more email than we did from that episode. And it's from people who say, this is something I think about all the time that I'm curious about that I feel alone in. And now I feel validated. And it was the same with that abortion episode. And the themes that we really hear from listeners all around the world um, is that sense of having found a safe space, sort of a respite from the world where they feel like they will learn, they will be challenged, they'll also be validated. And the kinds of questions that we get from listeners and the experiences that people share that they have never shared with other people mm -hmm. before that level of trust to us says that something's working. Well, so the podcast format, people from anywhere can listen. They can listen while they're driving or whatever. But you also published a book together, Unladylike, A Field Guide to Smashing the Patriarchy and Claiming Your Space. You outline what misogyny looks like, you know, how toys project social roles, uh, the debate over women's reproductive health. Why did a book feel like the right choice after all of these years of podcasting? The book was... The book was the way that we were able to take the conversation further. So when we initially started speaking with our literary agent, she told us that she thought we were the right people to move beyond just, should I be a feminist? What is feminism? That 101 level conversation into the actual issues that are affecting real women in their lives. And so we were thrilled to do that, to be able to put into the world a guide that didn't prescribe how you should live your life, but that contextualized basically why things are the way they are. And also a book that really holistically addresses women's lives, not just in the workplace or in dating situations, but when we are alone with our own thoughts. We have a chapter on head games, mental health, how our bodies are perceived, really just presenting how gender, patriarchy, sexism, and, and good things as well, <laughs> really uh, flow throughout our entire existences. And that's not to, to scare people away, but rather just provide women tools to just help make sense of the world around us. Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conjure. They are creators of Unladylike Media. You can check out more information on their company and episodes of the podcast at gpbnews.org. Madeline Adams of Flamingo Shadow wrote the show's music theme. So we're going to head into a quick break with music from that band. Stay with us for some of the voices behind Adult Swim's Squidbilly show, now in its 12th season. That's when On Second Thought continues.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Squidbillies is one of the longest-running shows on the Atlanta-based Adult Swim network. The animated series follows a family of anthropomorphic mud squids in the mountains of North Georgia. Ahead of its 12-season premiere, Chuck Reese of the Bitter Southerner podcast spoke with co-creators Jim Fortier and Dave Willis, along with Nashville-based singer Elizabeth Cook here at GPB. Elizabeth voices Tammy on Squidbillies. She's the girlfriend of a squid named Rusty. In this episode, Rusty has gone missing, and Tammy is fending off advances by Rusty's dad, Early. He's been gone four days. Maybe we should call the sheriff or put out one of those missing person alerts. No, no, I'm sure he's okay, and the sheriff will agree with me. Uh, Rusty's done hooked up with some other right now. The game's up. It's over. He would never do that. He loves me. He told me we were going steady. Now, you got to understand, little gal. Rusty's still got some wild seeds to sow. And so do I. Oh, yeah. What does that mean? Rusty said you ain't got no problems laying down with a squid. Why you want the sequel when you can have the prequel? Chuck Reese asked Elizabeth Cook how she got connected to Squidbillies. Dave Willis recalled hearing Elizabeth's accent during one of her concerts and knowing then and there that she was the right fit for Squidbillies. I remember filming it and sending it to Jim and going, oh my God, this is a real voice from the South. <laughs> you know, really, you know, unique voice. And I think we both sort of share an affinity for that just unique quality quality to the voice, not the fake southern accent, you know, not the Forrest Gump, not the foghorn leghorn. And the Isn't that always the wildest thing to watch anytime you see, or hear, rather, southern accents? Oh, God, so yeah. I'm like, no! Well, that was the first time I heard you talk. I was like, she really is like that. Well, my, my manager, Larry's here, and, the, and she says the number one question about me, well, second is like, if, who do I sleep with? But the first one was like, is my accent real? Do I really speak like this? Why would well, I have, uh, not? Why would I do this on purpose to myself? <laughs> you know. Well, that's. I mean, it's uh, hurt me as much as it's helped me. I'm sure. Have you ever lived outside the South? I live in Tennessee now, which is north. North. <laughs> well, it feels more Appalachian and Midwestern as much as it does Southern to me. Having come up in Central Inland Florida, which is just about as ratchet redneck as you can get, and then. I moved north to Waycross, Georgia, and I went to Georgia Southern, and then, yeah, Nashville, like, they don't automatically sweeten their tea there. You, they don't do it. That's wrong. Yeah. I did go to one place, in a, a little uh, grocery store that John T. Edge from the Southern Foodways Alliance took me to, and the lady who was waiting on our table, they, like, served lunch in there, you know, like meat and three. Right. And and she goes, you want that unsweet tea or you want that diabetic tea? Oh, judgmental. Well, I chose diabetic. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's it, the reason I asked you the question is, you know, like, I have spent two different stretches. I grew up in L.A.J., Georgia. Uh Nobody's going to clap for L.A.J. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I have fond memories of the place now, but it took me a long time to recall them. Uh, when I moved to New York the first time, which was in 1984, and then again when I moved back in 2000, in the year 2000, everybody just thought I was stupid from the get-go. Yeah. And I, I discovered the southern accent in a place like that, once they discover that you're actually capable 
you know, building a compound complex sentence on the fly. Yeah. You know, it moves from being you're an idiot to, oh, maybe that's charming. I met the one of the first times I met with a music row lawyer to sit down and go over a contract. She said to me, your vocabulary is surprising. And I didn't know whether to hug her or hit her, but she could not believe that I knew words. I was like, I had to do the SAT to go to Georgia Southern. I mean, come on. Elizabeth, are you, you're a CPA, aren't you? I, I never sat for the exam because I got out of that, but I, yeah, I did. Accounting major. major, right? Yeah, yeah I know. And, and, and a former Price Waterhouse employee. Yeah. I can do a spreadsheet and a keg stand. <laughs> Georgia Southern. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I've always marveled at about y'all's show is that, you know, you'll have some episodes where it's just straight up early collar doing something stupid and winding up with what somebody who does something that stupid ought to expect, right? <laughs> and then there are these other times where the whole thing somehow circles back to, like, you know, something that's in the current culture and in the political culture. Like, I think back to, you know, the, the, the episode when Early gets so upset that, that they're having a holiday tree in Dougal County, you know, instead of a Christmas tree. Somehow are you, you're able to do that without making people like me feel like we're the brunt of the joke, and you're able to make a point about big things that are going on. And, you know, most comedy shows I don't think ever start out with a grand intention like that, but I think over 11 years y'all have gotten there. Well, I mean, I think one thing is the network is, you know, graciously sort of let us write things that we want to write about and these are things that we bitch about with each other every morning at 10 a.m. you know it's like we're just we just sit there and just bitch about things that really drive us nuts <laughs> about you know where we live you know we're like I, I saw uh, I was in Florida just like uh, yesterday and I was like was behind a bumper sticker keep Christ in Christmas I'm like who's taking it from it <laughs> nobody <laughs> yeah. shut up <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, where do you stand on that issue yeah I mean so we try to yeah I mean that's that's sort of how we get get it out is you know writing jokes about it and I don't really think we monitor it from a sake sake of does anyone feel like this insults them we totally we're just like this is our approach this is how we're telling the story and this is how our view is coming across and this is our art and this is what we're doing and uh thankfully we work at a place where they're like our bosses are like yeah that's kind of we can kind of relate I feel like real artists ideally, I think, try to like peel layers off of things so that people can better understand and the nuances of things. And Squidbillies is a just premier example of, of a show that does that. So for me, I was like, anything you need with any of my time, I'm in because I'm just grateful. Tell me specifically what you're grateful for about this show. I think I think that it's 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 the dispelling of the myth. It's it's the best way to address hard issues is always with humor. Right. And 
of course, they've got that in spades, mm-hmm. and they're they're addressing things that are points of contention, and with all the anger and the hate all the time, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to get it through the filter of a cartoon that that makes fun of it in an intelligent way, but shines a light on things, shows different perspectives of people that might all be Southern, actually, and and just highlights nuances of the reality of being a Southerner is just super important. Especially right now. Yeah, especially right now. Because it's weird. Can we send the transcript of that to the Peabody <laughs> Award people? I'm a UGA grad. Well, I Let's... feel like we're getting away with something. And, that's another... and y'all are getting away with something. And I just, you know, I don't throw my weight behind that. Jim Fortier and Dave Willis there. They are co-creators of the animated TV show Squidbillies. We also heard from Elizabeth Cook, one of the voice actors on the show. And that is just a taste of their conversation with Chuck Reese when GPB and The Bitter Southerner hosted a preview of the 12th season premiere of Squidbillies. You can hear more of their conversation on a special edition of The Bitter Southerner podcast. Subscribe for free at gpb.org slash podcasts. A quick skim through the morning paper or scroll through your newsfeed can be pretty depressing. Stand-up comedy can offer an outlet for people who just need a mental health break from the news and enjoy a laugh. But I have to tell you that the manufacturer of the maternity gene is missing 50% of their possible potential audience. Because there isn't a guy in the audience this evening rolling over the front of his jeans that couldn't benefit from a male maternity gene, right? (laughs) We all untuck our shirt anyway. It's an elastic pouch right up the front. How comfortable would that be? Like a little Velcro fly? Perfect. James Bendall owns the punchline in Atlanta, and he says laughter continues to be one of the best ways to cope with bad news. My colleague Leah Fleming sat down with Jamie and asked him about the power and impact of comedy. Well, comedy generally. Well, think about we. So before we began today, we got talking a little bit medicine and things of that nature. And oftentimes people say uh, laughter is the best medicine. And when you think about it, there is an incredible uh, positivity that comes from being able to start to see the humor even in the most challenging times. So uh, you talk about sometimes conceptually, uh, it's too soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a terrible thing, there's been a tragedy and whatnot, and it's, we give it some sort of buffer area in which we're not gonna make fun or, or laugh at that circumstance. However, once you are able to start laughing about something, it's the first indicator that things are gonna be better. So even in the darkest moments that we experience, we are able to find something that brings some levity and lightness to it. That's to me, is one of the most terrific things about it, that certainly humor can have its cruelty, and we've, we all can think of uh, examples of where people use humor to harm. But really, the, the greater power in laughter and the greater power in humor is being able to use it to start to heal and, and move forward. Mm. So in your comedy club, do you find people looking for more political humor or less of it? So, yeah, that's a great question. Mm. I, can, I can tell you generally who's going to win the next election by how people are laughing. So, uh-huh. and take 9-11 as a, as a good example. So there was an extended time period in which that was a, a subject that was off limits. 
and certainly there were people who maybe had different perspective about how the wars were being fought and should we be at war and things of that nature. But if you got on a stage and were critical of President Bush during that time period, for a long while, there was a great resistance. We're not going there. We're not making fun of that guy. That's not where the humor is going to be. And then as his presidency progressed, you made fun of the president or you picked at a policy or something of that nature. And it was met with uproarious laughter. And so it was just a change of where people were. Right now, from a political perspective, there are people who are super passionate about their support of the president. And there are equally some number of people who are passionate in their frustrations or disappointment or objection to the current president. But unless we share some basic commonality about what we're even talking about, do, is there some common group of facts that we can agree on? It's hard sometimes to see where the humor where that through line is from a comedic perspective. Yeah, that is really interesting because, like you're saying, there are so many pro-Trump people and so many people that are uh, against what he's doing. And I'm wondering, when you're sitting there in a, in a comedy club and somebody brings up uh, Trump, I'm sure there are lots of uh, Trump jokes out there. I mean, do you ever get concerned that people are going to walk out if they hear something that they don't agree with? Well, okay, so I am... This is going to be a silly analogy. Mm. Generally speaking, comedy is not diving. So we don't get any extra credit for degree of difficulty. Mm. Right. So you can be a very successful comedian if you know how to win the cannonball contest. Right. And so if you think about a, a general comedy club goer who says it's Friday or Saturday night, I've got a date, I want to go out and I want to have some laughs, yeah. you may not necessarily do a lot of research on the kind of material that the comedian does. You just want to go out and laugh. So if you put yourself in that environment and you're out, I, I would ask that everyone trust the person who operates the venue. Any comedy club owner like my, I don't, I don't want my customers to come and have a bad time. So trust that these people are going to get you from start to finish and you're going to have an enjoyable evening and you're going to have some laughs. It's possible that the comedian wants to confront maybe some preconceived notions that you have about a social issue or a political issue or a day-to-day -day experience that you might be having. But for the most part, they want you to be able to have some identification with the material that they're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. The foibles of an interpersonal relationship, the challenges of raising your children, mm -hmm. frustrations that we share in the workplace. The audience and the performer has to have something that they can connect on. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really what makes it work. Yeah. I want the audience to hear some of your, your comedy. So let's listen uh -oh, to this. Wait a minute. This. Hang on a second. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> did you actually pull some comedy of mine? We did. Oh, OK. Well, so this is going to be an adventure for both of us. I'm curious what you picked. <laughs> let's see. But I don't know what your experience has been. But I know for me, the higher gas prices go, the more I realize my kids are not that good at soccer. Uh, I, I don't have any $4 gallon athletes in my house. I got, I got $2 gallon athletes. I did not hear that until now. What is your style of comedy? So here's what's interesting. Mm -hmm. I love politics. Mm -hmm. And I am really interested in things that drive us um, in that respect. Mm -hmm. My style on stage, however, rarely reference that. I am not a comedian who takes the stage from the perspective that says, I would like to 
introduce to you an opinion on a particular subject, and I would like you to uh, align your perspective with mine. I instead say, these are folks who, for whatever reason, chose to be here, and their specific purpose in purchasing the ticket is, I'm going to give you money. In exchange, I would like laughter. And so I'll go, great, I'll come meet you where you are. Uh, and so if there's going to be a person who ultimately is the butt of the joke, uh, I tend to be fairly self-deprecating. And uh, I try to, you know, set it up and, and make it work. You have been a lot of fun, Jamie Bendel. You are a comedian, a lawyer, and you are the owner of The Punchline in Atlanta. And we thank you so much for coming by and spending time with us. My pleasure to be here. Go out and laugh more. GPB Morning Edition host Leah Fleming there, speaking with Jamie Bendall from the Punchline Comedy Club in Atlanta. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. We get help from Don Smith, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.